Welcome to episode 173 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Uh, uh, we are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and this is uh, the interview that uh, we had hoped to do on Monday and we're doing on Wednesday and releasing separately from the Monday News Roundup. Uh, it's a conversation with Rick Leggett, who is the former deputy director of the National Security Agency. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Uh, let me let me start by asking what you've been doing since you left uh, the National Security Agency. Uh, mainly uh, taking time off to uh, to relax, play some golf, go to the Caribbean, and uh, uh, do chores around the house that have been neglected for a very long time. Yeah, my guess is uh, that's going to get old pretty soon. <laughs> Most likely, my wife my wife keeps making a longer and longer list. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, but maybe she's telling you something. <laughs> All right, so I, you, you spent a career at the NSA, uh, and you saw the rise of uh, cybersecurity um, and uh, um, uh, cyber attacks and cyber espionage over the last uh, 20 years, really. Uh, I, and uh, I, where do you think you end up in terms of thinking about this? Is it... Uh, a great gift to intelligence? Is it a new weapon? And is it going to be good for the U.S. or bad for the U.S.? Well, I think it's both. It's a, it's a double-edged sword. You've got the benefits that accrue to the United States from being a world leader in the use and development of the technology and ways to apply it, in, whether it's to business or government or everyday life. Um, and the connectivity that we have and the ability to create uh, new forms of knowledge by taking data and information and looking at it in different ways and manipulating it. It's just, it's a phenomenal, um, uh, capability that we have. And we've done, we as a nation have done a great job of turning that into something that is a huge uh, economic engine. On the uh, national defense side, the ability to move information and and provide situational awareness is one of the key things that makes our military the, the best in the world and, and basically without peer. And so I think from that point of view, uh, those are all advantages. I think the, the disadvantage, obviously, is the fact that the networks were set up to communicate with ease. They were not set up for security, largely. And so security is an applique over the top, and there are lots of holes in that. And as uh, as the networks develop, you know, it's the – the, the global telecommunication system is the most complex system that's ever been designed by man, and it's changing every day. There are thousands of people around the world each day who bring in new pieces of hardware, new pieces of software, new ways to use it, and each one of those changes the fabric of that of that network, and so it evolves constantly, which means it's a security nightmare. And so from, uh, from NSA's point of view, the two missions are, one, to – exploit aspects of that network in order to produce foreign intelligence, and two, to uh, to defend uh, the parts of that network that are what we call national security systems. And so the um, it's an advantage from an intelligence point of view, and it's, uh, uh, it's certainly an advantage from an operational and an economic point of view, but it's probably a disadvantage from a defensive point of view. 
Yeah, I, 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 that all sounds uh, pretty familiar. But let me push you on the uh, uh, we're the best in the world at this. Uh, uh, I, I, I have no doubt that we spend more and we have a lot of enormously talented people who have done remarkable things in terms of collecting intelligence and breaking into networks. Uh, but I also wonder if, if we haven't devoted large chunks of that capability and and those talents to satisfying the lawyers with ever more enthusiasm. I, I've heard a story, uh, maybe apoc apocryphal, uh, in which the Russians um, over uh, uh, vodka have said to Americans, well, we always know when it's you because it looks like it was written by lawyers. <laughs> I've not heard that story. That's funny. Um, I think, uh, uh, you know, we're a nation of laws and we need to do things that, uh, that comply with the laws and do them in, in lawful ways. It's one of the things that separates us from, from the people who don't and from the people who, who are not, um, uh, as principled as we are. And I think that's a defining characteristic of the United States. But I, I do think that you can overdo that. And so I think there's a balance to be had between making sure that the things you do are, are legal, lawful, and done in a legal and lawful way, um, without uh, suffering from the paralysis of legal analysis. Well, so one of the uh, one of the uh, objectives that the lawyers always insist on is making sure that the uh, the tool can't spread in the un predictable ways that could be disproportionate or affect uh, civilian structures and the like. Uh, um, and that, it turns out, is not how uh, uh, tools developed uh, by the U.S. have caused the most damage. And I won't ask you to confirm or deny that a lot of the stuff that's been released by uh, the shadow brokers uh, is uh, uh, tied to the U.S. government, cause, but a lot of people have said that. And certainly, some of those attacks have been used in WannaCry and the Petya uh, uh, attacks, uh, essentially deliberately repurposed uh, for um, attack uh, by other governments, likely. Uh, um, and that raises the question, you know, if we develop these tools, um, can we actually control them even if we design them not to uh, uh, go beyond the boundaries we've set if uh, if we don't know how to keep them out of the hands of others? Sure. So uh, specifically not, um, you know, uh, commenting on the validity of any uh, putative sourcing to the U.S. government. Um, I think that uh, that there's an ecosystem in the computer network uh, exploitation business, and that ecosystem consists of several different parts. One is the software writers, developers, uh, vendors who develop software with flaws in it, and mm -hmm. uh, and market that um, and sell that. And you know, paragraph 35 of the end user license agreement that no one reads says this is as is. Um, and then there, uh, that's part one of the ecosystem. Uh, part two of the ecosystem is the uh, people who buy the software and uh, deploy it and uh, don't update it or you know, buy an unlicensed copy that can't be updated and use it uh, in their networks. And there's another part of the ecosystem is people who will, uh, who will, uh, with the cooperation of the software vendors, who will um, design custom software that's completely embedded in a in an organization's operational activities, so that they're intertwined in a way that they can't be easily updated because it will cause uh, operational impacts to the to the customer. Um, and then you've got the um, 
uh, part of the ecosystem is uh, people who discover uh, vulnerabilities, uh, discover those vulnerabilities that are in the software and develop exploits against those vulnerabilities. And then the final part in the ecosystem is the people who um, who uh, do criminal things with vulnerabilities, however those vulnerabilities are acquired and those exploits uh, are acquired. And so focusing in on any one aspect of that ecosystem, uh, you know, makes for nice headlines, but doesn't actually solve the problem. I think you need to approach the entire thing uh, in order to solve the problem. Well, that's a very nice way of saying that uh, uh, Microsoft's president uh, um, uh, faced with criticism that uh, uh, Microsoft hadn't, properly or sufficiently responded to the WannaCry uh, uh, exploit by uh, uh, updating Windows XP and some of the other uh, out-of-service uh, um, uh, systems that uh, were still in use, uh, uh, decided to uh, to blame NSA for the, uh, for the event. I, I agree with you. Everybody has to play a role. Um, but uh, let me just ask, push just a little, uh, without... Um, uh, buying into Microsoft's uh, uh, blame game, uh, uh, is there something, you know, is there a way to really assure us that uh, um, uh, the CIA and NSA, when they develop tools, uh, uh, can keep control of those tools? Uh, I've I've walked in and out of the uh, National Security Agency. Uh, no one's ever patted me down looking for uh, thumb drives, and, and frankly, we wouldn't have anybody working there if uh, we started doing that. Um, so how do you how do you actually control um, the tools that uh, that we quite properly are using for the national interest? Yeah, I think um, one of the one of the lessons that we learned from the Snowden um, uh, disclosures, the uh, his his activities, uh, was um, and NSA has done a lot of work uh, over over time in trying to address some of the the basically. Um, Vulnerabilities uh, that existed in their processes in order to uh, to minimize the likelihood of that happening again. Um, you know, uh, if if uh, if an insider, somebody uh, who is trusted by the system, wants to take something out, it's really really hard to stop them. Um, so what you need to do is set up a set of, uh, of, of interlocking procedures that involve uh, technical security. Um, physical security and personnel security, and so there's a whole suite of activities that you can do in each of those places. And it's it's actually a, a calculus problem with lots of, of variables, and you have to be careful in how much of each variable you turn up. What's the what's the mean the curve of the cost benefit analysis that says more of this will have a greater impact for the good and less impact, you know, negatively, like making people walk out the door because they're sick of working there. Um, versus uh, the, the things that, yeah, I can do more of it, but it doesn't really have an effect. And so that's a very complex uh, complex effort to undertake. Um, I, I know for a fact because uh, I helped do it. NSA has been doing that for a couple of years now. Um, but it's not a, uh, a situation where you can say, hey, let's just stop work for three or four months in order to make these changes. <laughs> you have to do it while you're operating. Um, you know, if NSA – Stops doing what they're doing in order to uh, to fix a particular thing. And this is not. An, it sounds hyperbol hyperbolic, but it's not. People will die. The things that we do keep people alive in war zones and and elsewhere uh, every day. So um, yeah, really, I, I think that there's a lack of appreciation 
of the difficulty, especially on a global um, system. Remember, I talked about the uh, the complexity of the global telecommunication system. Well, the system that you would use in order to find foreign intelligence in that global telecommunication has a similar level of complexity. And so it's not just slapping a software patch or frisking people when they walk out of the building. That just doesn't doesn't do it. Yeah, and 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 I will say, you know, a lot of the most recent uh, breaches have come to light because we arrested people, uh, which is the good news, I guess, uh, um, that we are getting better at catching people when they walk when they try to leak stuff. But uh, uh, still, this is this is a major going to be a major problem, and our adversaries, of course, are really good at uh, making the U.S. intelligence uh, community take the blame. Uh, this uh, Petya uh, uh, attack, uh, which was disguised as ransomware when it was really a, a destructive attack, uh, destroying uh, uh, computers, uh, um, it I looked to me as though they threw in uh, one of the shadow brokers' uh, exploits, not because it was really going to uh, help them that much uh, after all the patches, but because it uh, meant that the first week of stories were talking about how NSA did this to us. Well, sure, and that, that would be consistent with uh, some foreign nation states' uh, you know, desires to denigrate the USIC in general and NSA in particular. So let me let me ask about uh, uh, the other uh, big issue in this area involving uh, nation states, which is uh, the Russian attack on our electoral system. By, uh, uh, the uh, um, uh, not just breaking into campaigns uh, and campaign-related figures' uh, emails, but doxing them all, uh, uh, looking through and maybe trying to do something to the voter rolls. Um, you lived through that, uh, if I remember right. Uh, what was your sense uh, as it started to unfold uh, about uh, uh, how serious this was going to be? I think I think that there was recognition early on that that you know the activity was happening. Um, I think two things probably factored in to to um, make it uh, less obvious. One, uh, you know, from an NSA point of view, um, we were uh, uh, looking at the foreign intelligence side of the house. We don't look at the the domestic uh, impact of things, and so we're looking at what what foreign actors are doing, and so the the linkage between that activity and the activity in the news, uh, you know, the, the false news, the trolling, the things like that, the use of the uh, of of you know our First Amendment rights against us in the election, um, I think uh, that was not something that was uh, immediately apparent, at least to me, um, and I think also the as as the and and this has been talked about in the in the press as the US intelligence community's knowledge improved over the summer and into the fall um i i believe and I, I won't speak for the president but my understanding from what i've read is that he was concerned about not being perceived to influence the election by the actions he took so i think that was a tough position for him to be in and sympathetic to that yeah, I can I can see why he would um flinch from that. Um and it's probably easier to flinch from that if you think that uh, in the end the candidate that you'd be accused of supporting is going to win no matter what you do. So um 
<laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so actually, that does raise the, the uh, one question. I'll try to be delicate about this. Uh, there have been widespread reports that, uh, uh, in fact, maybe NSA has said this that they offered only moderate confidence that uh, uh, the goal of the hacking was to help Donald Trump versus. Uh, hurt Hillary Clinton, though that's kind of a binary choice, uh, um, and that the uh, uh, the reason for that might be the source of the intelligence uh, uh, that led um, the CIA to conclude uh, that uh, the goal of uh, uh, the uh, uh, the Russian administration was both to help Trump and to hurt uh, uh, Hillary. Uh, uh, can you shed any light on why NSA would have had a different view of how good that intelligence was? Sure. I think um, that's actually uh, a hallmark of success of the Intelligence Reform and Terrorist Prevention Act of 2005, I think it is, or, um, mm-hmm. where, 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 which installed um, analytic integrity standards, uh, uh, legislated them into uh, to the DNI's, um, the DNI's uh, uh, functions in order to ensure that there was texture in intelligence and that there was not a, a groupthink or a pressure to everybody come up with the same answer. And as you recall, that came all came about because of a curveball and the yellow cake uranium story that led towards uh, the decision or the uh, community view that, that it was likely that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction, which, of course, later turned out not to be true. Um, but... So during this, this process, and I actually uh, participated in meetings with our analysts who were involved in that, um, we talked about that a lot. And um, from their point of view, um, you know, the, the, you know mo- it was the difference between moderate confidence and high confidence, and it was on that one aspect. We were in agreement that there was high confidence that it was the Russian government. There was high confidence that the – Russian government intended to denigrate uh, Secretary Clinton. Um, CIA and FBI had high confidence that their goal was to uh, support the candidacy of, uh, of uh, Donald Trump, and NSA was only at moderate there. Um, lots of discussion about that, both internally and across the community. And at the end of the day, um, uh, our analytics, analytic posture that both uh, uh, Admiral Rogers and I agree with was we're okay with that. So let me ask, you know, this is this is the biggest change that I've seen. Well, it's not maybe not the biggest, but it's certainly one big change since I was at the agency. When I was there, um, if someone said um, NSA's analysis of the intelligence, uh, um, the CIA would have stopped the discussion right there and said, no, then NSA does not do analysis. And most people at, at the NSA would have agreed. We, we produce the intelligence. Somebody else analyzes it. it. Has that really changed over the last 20 years? Yeah, it has. Uh, it's a pretty significant change. I think that has to do with a couple of things. One is um, the the influence of signals intelligence in the intelligence community as as the major source of intelligence. I mean, you you had Mike Hayden, uh, you know, former director of uh, CIA and NSA both, saying that SIGINT provides as much as 80% of the foundational intelligence in the USIC. And so, um, and, and, and people also found, hey, guess what, you know, there's some smart people up there and they can contribute to the analytic, uh, the analytic effort and the analytic product. And then from within NSA, um, we have, uh, uh, we had more of, of our people who were out doing, 
um, all source analytics sorts of jobs and getting that kind of experience and training. Not everybody can do it. It's not a uniform across the board, but in uh, in certain areas uh, uh, we have um, you know some of the best analysts in the IC. Well, and I guess it's only fair, right? You're you're doing analysis that the CIA used to think was their monopoly, and uh, they're doing a lot of hacking that uh, used to be NSA's monopoly. So there's competition across the board now that there wasn't before. Um, let me ask. Uh, I actually yeah, I don't think that's as much. Stuart, if I can, Stuart, if I can push back a little yep. bit, I don't think that's as much competition as it is. Um, different ways to do things. There's actually a lot of coordination to make sure that we're not being duplicative. Uh, and so what happens is that um, people have different different lanes within those things, and they actually work together pretty well. And so what you what you get on, on really important things is you'll get two different viewpoints on a topic, which I think is a service to the nation. Yeah, I, I, it, it does make sense. And I agree, of course, everybody has the things that they're best at. And I'm willing to bet that uh, if you need physical access to a machine in order to hack it, that uh, CIA has focused many of its opportunities, uh, many of its uh, um, uh, skills on that particular problem because they are in the business of finding people who can, through their physical access to information provide uh, intelligence to the U.S., uh, whereas NSA has been more of a standoff, can we do it uh, without uh, without touching a human being uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, approach. Um, and that's a gross generalization, but I'm guessing that's how the broad division of responsibility runs. I think those broad strokes are about right. So uh, let me go back to the election uh, uh, meddling uh, uh, because um, it's turned out to be a, a massively partisan issue, not just during the election. And, and clearly there were very partisan reactions to um, the president's, uh, President Obama's efforts to um, uh, ring the alarm bell. Uh, and uh, it has continued. Uh, we've got uh, uh, Democrats uh, uh, looking for grounds for impeachment uh, in some kind of collusion um, uh, uh, conspiracy theory that uh, is going to be pursued by uh, Bob Mueller and others. Uh, uh, and at the same time, we got the president sort of saying, you know, could it hasn't really quite given up on the idea it might be a 400-pound hacker and uh, you know operating from bed. Uh, um, a, and uh, neither of those strikes me as completely um, uh, rational responses to what Putin did, uh, uh, or as likely to worry him about doing it again in 2018 and then again in 2020. Uh, um, uh, what's your assessment about what we should be doing? Yeah, I think uh, I think concerns over 2018 are definitely well founded. Um, I mean, if you look at what happened in 2016, and if you look at what uh, Russia has done in Europe and in the near abroad, and even internally going back, uh, you know, over a decade, and 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 if you want to be, you know, really historical, go back to the Soviet Union back into the 1950s in Eastern Europe. Um, the countries that, you know, eventually uh, became part of the Warsaw Pact, um, they have a history of doing this kind of work. And so nothing that's happened since 2016 to them, uh, I believe, provides them any disincentive to, to do it again. 
and um, it's got to be, you know, the the information operations coup uh, for whatever officer or officers in the in the GRU uh, were involved in in doing this. Um, and so I, I think that uh, that we need to uh, to to get over the uh, politics of this and have a bipartisan approach. And, and the, it's a great leadership opportunity for the president if he sees that. Um, it's it's not it should be seen as at any impugning of of the results of the election. I think that's an unknowable thing. People who say, "Oh, well, that turned the election," they don't they really can't can't tell that uh, for sure. It's it's an unknowable thing. Um, don't worry about that. Worry about uh, what's happening going forward and focus on let's identify what aspects of the electoral process um, need to, to be protected and shored up right now. Have a whole of government uh, effort to do that with the support of the Congress, bipartisan support of the Congress, and also um, support from each of the 50 states because, as you know, a lot of the electoral infrastructure is actually uh, the election-related infrastructure is actually the responsibility of each state. And so um, that's got to be the focus, not, um, you know, picking winners and losers in, in the political side. Because we're all going to lose. I, I, if we're going to do this again, we all lose. I completely agree with you, although, you know, this is uh, uh, it's not just uh, President Trump who's uh, responding with a lack of enthusiasm to uh, this idea. The states um, uh, or the secretaries of state uh, who control the voting process first, they've, they've, they haven't gotten so much press in uh, my lifetime, uh, and they're using that press to say, oh, the federal government should keep its hands off, it's going to screw up the elections, it's going to tamper with the elections, uh, um, I, and, and the response to DHS saying maybe this should be treated as part of critical infrastructure is uh, uh, typical. Uh, uh, the Everybody, um, actually mainly, I think, Republicans, but uh, a lot of people said, no, hands off our election process. We don't want your help, uh, even though I think it's pretty obvious that states operating by themselves are not going to have the resources to respond to a sophisticated attack. I think that's exactly right. So if, if let me ask you this if you were if you were if if you could say not just uh, uh you know we should have a whole government response but what that government response should be um uh, what what would you do that we're not yet doing to respond to what is likely to be a very sophisticated uh, uh set of intrusions next time I do a couple of different things one I would look at um at sending teams of people out, and I'd engage industry on this. I'd have a joint government industry uh, group of folks, and I'd leverage uh, U.S. Cyber Command and their uh, their cyber protection team. I'd leverage NSA's expertise, and I'd put them all under um, somebody non-threatening, maybe DHS or something, and say these people are going to come help you help you review and secure your election-related infrastructure state by state. Um, that'd be a huge effort. That's a lot of work, and the numbers of people who could do that you know, are, are not that large. And so it would take a lot of work to do that. But but the way that you do that, um, I'd mirror what we do uh, with uh, uh, blue team and red team work. Blue team goes out and reviews policies, reviews network structures, reviews um, uh, software patches, things like that, and says, okay, here's, here's where you need to fix. Give them some period of time to fix that, some assistance in fixing that, some resources. 
And then the red team tries to knock on the door and get in, and that raises your level of, of security. I would also have um, – I'd provide the same sort of advice on a, on a you know, cross uh, nonpartisan basis to each of the parties um, and, you know, their national committee headquarters. Um, and then I would also uh, engage the media in terms of, of looking at um, policing themselves. And by that, I don't mean – um, I don't mean imputing their ability to say what they want to say, but looking for false news. The Europeans have actually started doing this. They've done some really good work over there with uh, with uh, sort of self-generated uh, collaborations between different media outlets that are looking at and identifying troubling sites and fake news sites and things like that to say, hey, this isn't really real. This this story is false and shooting them down. I think that sort of thing is, uh, is really helpful as well. So do you think we could... Um uh, have legis- would it take legislation? I suspect it would to uh, uh, start paying bug bounties for people who find holes in the, the electoral systems of one or more states. I think uh, I think you could you could do that. I think I think that's a useful thing on the back end. I think you have to do the the review up front to get them to a place because I, I I bet you most states it would be pretty easy to to find bugs um, and so. Usually you want to at least try to normalize things to a certain baseline before you start trying to poke holes in it. So what about sanctions? Uh, um, there, the, we have the, the President Obama sanctions from December of last year that most people have uh, treated as not all that uh, uh, deterring. Um, and they've been modified uh, um, slightly uh, um, because of the fact that uh, you can't actually tell U.S. companies not to deal with the FSB if you want them to have any presence at all in um, Russia because the FSB is also a regulatory body. Um, a, the Senate has passed a, a significant sanctions bill, uh, but um, uh, there's real doubt about whether it'll pass the House or whether the President will sign it. Uh, um, uh, do we really have a, uh, a sanctions regime that can deter this in 2018? I don't think we do yet. I mean, it's, this is all about the cost versus the benefit for uh, for Russia. Um, and I would say the same applies to China when you talk about you know the Chinese sorts of uh, cyber activities. The benefit that they get from this is so great in comparison to the cost that that we're just not disincentivizing them. And so we need to figure out how do we lower the benefit and how do we raise the cost. And until we get those two more in balance, then we're not going to be able to um, to stop them. And 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 it's not just sanctions; it's you know all elements of national power. Um, it has to be. It's not just cyber on cyber. It's it's um, economics on cyber. It's uh, diplomatic on cyber. You know, find what are the things that um, that Russia wants, and how do we put those things at risk to the point that uh, President Putin says it's not worth it for me to do that anymore. So one of the things that uh, uh, appears to be in the works is a legislative ban on uh, um, the U.S. government uh, uh, using Kaspersky software. Uh, uh, that's a security software, some of which is, uh, I guess it's freemium. It's widely distributed free, but also uh, they uh, charge companies for it. It has a significant uh, uh, market penetration in the United States, uh, but the... Uh, 
determination to uh, take it out of critical infrastructure seems to be growing. Uh, 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 do you have views on that one? I do. Um, I have to be careful here. There's there's things I can't talk about uh, here, but I think that the concern over Kaspersky is well founded, and I think mm-hmm. that there's growing growing recognition in um, in uh, has been in the executive branch for a while, and more recently in Congress that um, we probably don't want that in uh, really significant parts of the government or critical infrastructure networks. So that that probably uh, solidifies a a world in which if you want security, you have to decide which block you want security from. There's a sort of NATO Western block, uh, uh, and then there are some security companies in China and Russia who are going to be effectively blackballed uh, by um, uh, government influence circles in the West. I think one of the things, if I were in a position to make a decision like that, one of the things that I would look at, uh, you know, with those blocks is what are the foundational ethos and values of those blocks? Do they believe in the rule of law? Do they believe in, uh, you know, working together internationally? Or are they, um, you know, out for their own good all the time to the detriment of others? Yeah, I, I I think that makes sense. The the other thing, and this is the last question I'm going to ask you, is uh, that I've noticed is that while the crypto debate has been noisy in the United States, kind of intermittently noisy, uh, and we'll probably get noisy again as soon as we pick a an FBI director uh, uh, and get him in office. Uh, um, the is while while it's been noisy in the U.S., nothing has happened, uh, uh, but strikingly. Uh, most of our allies are now saying they want controls on encryption. I think Australia, the UK, France, Germany, um, a, a kind of mixed messages from Brussels. Uh, uh, you, you've been close to our, uh, our many of our allies on this issue, and they must have talked to you about it. Uh, do you think that uh, uh, even if the U.S. never mandate some kind of crypto facilitation uh, uh, rules for the private sector that we're going to see it anyway out of uh, our allies? It's possible. It already happens right now in uh, in uh, China and uh, Russia. If you um, are a you know foreign, foreign or domestic company and you want to operate in those countries and you have um, uh, cryptography, you have to make that accessible to the state on demand. So, so they're already doing it in some cases if they want to operate there and have cryptographic protections. And so, um, I, I, I think it's likely, you know, for me, this is something that in the United States and, and also internationally, but I think the U.S. has to get its act together first, both, both because we are so large and influential in this space because of the companies, um, but also as a thought leader is I don't want the decision on whether there are areas uh, of our um, our infrastructure, the, the logical infrastructure of the Internet, that are not accessible to law enforcement. Um, I don't want that decision made by an individual or a company. I want that decision to be a national decision where we've got privacy advocates, intelligence organizations, law enforcement, um, the 
tech companies, uh, uh, all different kinds, victims' families, all different kinds of people who get together and have a conversation about that. And what is the sweet spot? It's not every. It can't be everything's encrypted all the time and nobody can read anything. And it can't be everything is open all the time and government or law enforcement can read anything it's want. So between those two extremes is what we're talking about. What should that place be? I don't think that's any one set of uh, or one uh, set of entities. Um, uh, right to make that decision. That's got to be a national conversation. Okay. I, uh, uh, Rick Leggett, uh, former deputy director at the National Security Agency. Let me ask one last question about uh, your current activities because we always give our guests an opportunity to uh, plug um, pro- things they're going to be producing, books, papers, speeches, uh, conference appearances, anything you want to uh, tell our listeners to be watching for? Uh, no, I'm still uh, early days of trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. So, well, I, I you know, I, I will only say it is a a, a lot of fun to be out uh, in uh, many ways. Uh, you'll miss the government, but uh, uh, there are rewards uh, and satisfactions that uh, you can get uh, in the private sector. So, I hope you'll keep speaking out on these issues. Uh, uh, and thank you for your contribution today. Well, thanks, Stuart. I appreciate it. Well, thanks to Rick Leggett. That was a uh, an informative and thoughtful uh, uh, interview, uh, and it uh, concludes episode 173 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, please send us your suggestions for other uh, interviews we can do, and if you do, we uh, will send you a special Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast mug uh, as soon as the person appears on the program. Uh, send those suggestions to Cyber Law Podcast podcast at steptoe.com. Coming up, we've got uh, multiple uh, um, uh, interviews uh, before our August uh, uh, hiatus. Uh, I, we hope you'll join us for those and uh, uh, again in September as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and